that it's valuable. And uh, it's a book written by God for our good, so we know it's profitable. And yet uh, the reality is that we uh, don't often benefit from it, and so we either avoid it or we do weird things when we read it that we wouldn't do with any other book. And uh, sometimes we uh, almost feel like that's our only option because we know we're supposed to get something out of it. And uh, we try to read it and it seems so hard and we're not sure if we can understand it, which is a, a shame and doesn't have to be the way it is because uh, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us and because uh, we can learn hard things. And actually, uh, sometimes hard things can become easier for us. We can get better at doing hard things. But usually that process begins with going back to the basics and mastering those. And when uh, those basics are mastered, that helps us do things that are more difficult. And so we've been going back to some of the basics here at the beginning as we have been looking at the Old Testament the past couple weeks and talking about some really uh, sort of fundamental questions like, what is this book? And we said that it is the word of God. Uh, which means that it is uh, inspired by God. It is God-breathed, but at the same time, it's written by humans. So the Bible is a, um, is a miracle. Understanding it's written by God gives us motivation to read it because we know that it is telling us the truth and because we know that it's important since God wrote it. And knowing that it's written by humans assures us we can understand it, but we're going to have to use the means that we use when we're listening to humans whenever someone's communicating to us. So this is a unique book, but it is a book. It's the, it's the word of God. But the Old Testament in particular comes under a lot of pressure, the Bible in general, but the Old Testament in particular, because it says a lot of things that are difficult and different for us. And so uh, why should we trust that this book is the word of God? That was our second question. And we went back to, to Jesus. When we uh, disagree uh, with the Old Testament, it's usually because there's some authority that we're listening to out there that says it's wrong. And uh, that's just how we work as humans. We take a lot of things on other people's authority. And so why do we trust the Old Testament? Well, one of the big reasons we trust the Old Testament is because we look to Jesus and he trusted the Old Testament. And it makes sense to trust Jesus's authority because he uh, rose from the dead. So we're going to study the Old Testament, and studying the Old Testament well begins with understanding what the Old Testament is, what specifically what God is doing in the Old Testament. Because obviously, uh, when you don't understand what something is for, it's hard to use it. Uh, understanding how to use almost anything begins with understanding what it is and what its, what its purpose is. And so if you look to the Old Testament as a magic book, uh, it's not going to work. If you look at it as being a book, first of all, about self-help, it's really not going to work because that's not its, not its purpose. And you'll get frustrated as you study the Old Testament because you're using it poorly. But if you understand what the Old Testament is doing, then you're going to benefit from it. And what the Old Testament is doing is telling a story a real story, the most important story, the story uh, of all stories, the story that answers the most important questions in life. And then uh, we asked, okay, if the Old Testament is telling a story, where do we find that story? And how is it organized? Uh, I'm reading a story, 
That's what I'm doing when I look at the Old Testament. Where do I find it? How's it organized? That was question number four. And we just opened up our Bibles and we kind of looked at the table of contents and saw that there are 39 books in the Old Testament, uh, our English Old Testament. So this is uh, kind of a challenge in that it's one book, but it is made up of a bunch of different books. And we talked about how we know those are the 39 books in our Old Testament. And then we talked about two different ways of organizing them. Uh, because that's important. How do you organize uh, these books? And the first is the, the way of organizing that we find in our English Bibles, which is uh, law, history, uh, poetry, and prophets. And uh, there's, a, there's a, uh, I guess, a certain sense in which that is helpful, but it's also kind of not helpful because almost every one of those categories is wrong. Like the first five books aren't really law, Law, it's instruction, it contains some laws, but it's more teaching. Uh, history, it's true that Joshua through Kings is history, but it's not, it's not history, maybe how we think of it exactly, it is uh, prophets preaching history. Poetry, some of that is poetry, but certainly not all of that is poetry, and then prophets is probably the closest, but there are writing prophets, and there also were preaching prophets, and in our Bibles, of course, we have the writing prophets. But then we saw there's another way of organizing it, not just the English, in our, the way we do it in our English Bibles, and that's the way it was organized in the Hebrew Bibles, uh, Hebrew Bible, and that was uh, summarized with the, t by calling it the Tanakh. You'll hear the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament described as the, the Tanakh. And uh, this is the way Jesus talked about it. The law, uh, the prophets, and the Psalms is how Jesus uh, organized his Old Testament. And in the... Uh, Hebrew Bible, you find the Torah, you find the prophets, but that is all the way from Joshua to uh, Malachi, and then you find the writings. And so the Hebrew Bible ends with, with Chronicles. And we uh, like the Hebrew Bible's way of organizing the story a little better. First of all, because it gives us a good sense of the beginning and the ending. Genesis is the beginning. Chronicles describes the ending. And then second of all, because it helps us understand how the story works. In those first five books, we're getting the foundation. Really, Genesis through Deuteronomy, you get almost the whole, whole Testament. If you understand Genesis through Deuteronomy, you get the whole story. And then you get the explanation of Genesis through Deuteronomy really in the prophets. First, the former prophets, which looks like history to us, Joshua through Kings, but they are preaching history. They're telling stories to explain something. And then the writing prophets, and mostly they're explaining why what happened to Israel happened to Israel and what was coming next. And then you get the difference that story makes in the writings and how to live in light of that story. And so that's kind of a, just a general introduction to the Old Testament and its, and its story. But today I want to look more specifically at the story itself and uh, ask what is the Old Testament story about? In a couple weeks we're going to get to just how to have devotions in the Old Testament. But today, I want to talk a little bit about the story itself. We talked about, uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the purpose of the story, the reason for the story, and the theme of the story. But I want to look more closely at the story itself. What is this story about? Which is a pretty basic question, right? Like if I say the Old Testament is a story, and you weren't familiar with it, what question would you ask me? Uh, you would say, what is the story about? If uh, you went to a play that I never heard of and you came back from that play and you said, oh, I just saw the best play, what's the question I would ask you? I would say, what is the play about? 
And if you said, I have no idea, then I would say, I'm not sure, were you really at the play? You have to be able to, how good a play was it if you can't explain what it was about? You uh, definitely wouldn't think we understood the Old Testament if we weren't able to answer what is the story of the Old Testament. And obviously, you're going to have to be able to answer that if you're going to be able to explain any particular part of the Old Testament as well. So I was thinking, imagine you go to Mount Rushmore and uh, you use one of those high-powered cameras and you zoom in on the nose of George Washington. And that's the only part you see. And then someone asks you, what did you see today? And you try to explain just that little section of George Washington's nose without telling them the rest. Uh, if they weren't familiar with Mount Rushmore and you only talked about what you saw through the zoomed in camera, it would be pretty confusing. And while you might say some things that were true, it really wouldn't be an accurate explanation if you stopped there with George Washington's nose. Before you zoom in, you need, before you zoom in, you need to zoom out and get the big picture, especially if you're going to explain. You have to be like, oh, this is George Washington and that little part, what I looked at today or what you can see in this picture, how that fits is that's his nose. And they're like, oh, now I can understand. And so we need to have a basic idea of what the story of the Old Testament is about. And uh, we can do that with most good, good stories, right? So if I ask you, what is Anne of Green Gables about? What would you say Anne of Green Gables is about? Anybody? A kindred spirit out there or a bosom buddy or whatever she, whatever she says. <laughs> it's about a Canadian orphan girl. Yeah, the life of a Canadian orphan girl. Uh, um, I had a friend who would say I was his kindred spirit. I'm like, I don't think so because I would never call a guy my kindred spirit. But um, <laughs> like, uh, sorry, for, I love you, but that's different. Or even uh, movies, you know, if I ask you what's Black Panther about, I bet uh, Calvin could explain it very quickly. And when you uh, talk about most stories and what they're about, it usually follows a sequence, like a logical sequence. You would uh, start at the beginning, and then you would explain the middle, and then you would talk about the ending. Uh, so that's how we organize stories in our mind and how we understand them. I don't know if you ever had a child who told stories, but they kind of told them randomly. And so um, they would come home from school and maybe you ask them what happened and they're just saying a bunch of different statements in a very disconnected way. And so what do you have to do to understand what they're talking about? You have to, you have to help them explain things. Okay, let's go back. Oh, that's what happened first. Oh, that's what happened next. And if you don't get that sequence, you don't really get the story. I actually heard about... Uh, television story, uh, television series that was trying to mess with that way of telling stories. I, I, um, I didn't watch it, but I read about it on Wikipedia. And so they put out uh, seven episodes and they said, you can watch them in any order that you want. Um, but you know what most people would do when they watched it? They would try to figure out what is the right order and on their own. And as they watched, they were trying to put, put it together. And actually, according to reviews that I, I saw, at least, the best way for understanding that story was the most common way, which was just the beginning, the middle, and, and the end. Because that's how stories basically work. And so to, to understand what the Old Testament story is about, we need to think a, a little bit about how it flows. In other words, what's the beginning? 
what's the middle and what's, what's the ending. And we can do that by dividing uh, the story the Old Testament tells into six main parts. And so we're going to uh, take a little time to think about each of those parts and how it helps us understand what we're reading. And I think this will help you as you read the Old Testament, because really when you're looking at uh, little stories, you're looking at the nose of George Washington, it helps to know it's the nose of George Washington. And so knowing the story will help you think about those little stories. Where are you in this story? How does it, how does it fit? How does it connect? And it takes a little bit of work to do this, obviously, because there's a lot of history in the Old Testament. It covers thousands of, of years. But if you can remember these six main parts, then you can tell the Old Testament story well. And uh, first, we'll begin where you would expect us to begin, and that is creation. Uh, the Bible opens, Genesis chapter 1-1, one, one, one of the most famous verses uh, in the entire Bible, because it's the first one. Most Bible reading plans, at least you can get past this, Genesis 1-1. One, one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And uh, that is a really a basic verse to most of us. We're very familiar with it. And yet, uh, it's actually pretty radical if you look at it a little more closely. And uh, someone once said that if you want to understand actually what makes the Christian story different, what makes the Old Testament story really different than every other story out there, all you need to do is look at this one verse. So, first of all, when we look at creation and look at the way this story begins, uh, we see that there is a beginning. When God talks about this world and our place in it, uh, we see very clearly in Genesis 1-1, there is a beginning to creation, which means that creation is not eternal. And uh, that should be kind of obvious, but it actually has not been obvious to most uh, cultures for thousands of years. In the ancient world, they thought of uh, the cosmos as basically eternal. Um, and so they viewed the universe as existing in this chaotic state forever. And somehow the gods came into being after the cosmos. And then the gods put the cosmos into order. And when they talk about creation in Moses's day in the culture surrounding him, they thought of it primarily as gods acting almost like administrators, cosmic administrators, putting the eternal cosmos into a, a state in which we could inhabit. But clearly the Bible story is different because there is a definitive beginning. In the beginning, God created. So there's a beginning to the heavens and the earth, but there is not a beginning to God. God has no beginning. Uh, Psalm 90 verse 2 says this. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And so sometimes people will ask if uh, God created the universe, who created God? And when they ask that, they really think they're saying something wise, but they're actually saying something foolish because God is not a created being. That's part of what it means for him to be God. So that's kind of like asking what sound does silence make? 
Um, silence is defined by not making a sound. And God is really, by definition, uncreated. He's always existed. And so uh, the question we might ask is, what was happening before the beginning of creation? And obviously, that's a, that's a tough question. And we're limited because we weren't there. I, I definitely wasn't there. Um, I don't think any of you know. I know you weren't there. And so all we can do is look at what the Bible reveals about what it was like before the beginning. And probably the most basic thing we can say is that before the beginning, all there was was God. There's God, and then there's creation. And there's a time when God created creation. And actually, one of the things God created was time, or at least the idea of time. And this is one of the hardest things for us to understand, but as someone has written, One of the loftiest and admittedly most puzzling doctrines for us as temporal creatures is the timeless and eternal nature of God. We often assume that the eternality of God refers to God's immortality, but this fringes on oversimplicity. Stephen Charnock defined eternity as a permanent permanent and immutable state, a perfect possession of life without any variation. It comprehends in itself all years, all ages, all periods of ages. It never begins. It endures after every duration of time and never ceases. It does as much outright and run time as it went before the beginning of it. Time supposes something before it, but there can be nothing before eternity, which is... Jonathan Edwards explains, the eternity of God's existence is nothing else but his immediate, perfect, and invariable possession of the whole of his unlimited life together and at once. In other words, in respect to time, there's no change in God whatsoever, no growth, no diminishment, not a trace of alteration. He remains untouched by the winds of time. He's without beginning or end, and he has no temporal secession. That is, he doesn't move through time as we do. The eternality of God is simply the infinitude of God applied to time. By his eternal essence, God is the only being completely unaffected by the passage of time. He gains and loses nothing through the span of history, which is maybe why uh, the Bible describes God as seeing time differently than we do. Uh, In Psalm 90, verse 4, it says, A thousand years in God's sight are like yesterday when it's uh, past or a watch in the night. And 2 Peter 3.8, you know this verse, but it says a thousand years in God's sight are like one day and one day like a thousand years, which kind of blows our minds. And it should blow our minds because we're created. We're not the creator. And the creator is someone who is fundamentally different than us. And yet to understand creation and why he created, we have to understand a little bit about this creator because there are some things about God that are different than how people normally think about God. And one of the things that is different about this eternal God is that he is self-existent. He has absolutely no needs. So if you uh, look at the ancient Near Eastern world, and just uh, that means just the world in which the ancient Israelites lived, the people around them believed there were many gods and that the gods were contained within the universe. And so they didn't really talk about where did the gods come from. But they did believe they had some sort of origin and that they created humans eventually to do the work that they didn't want to do anymore. Like, for example, the gods needed food and drink to survive. And so the gods created humans to get food and drink for them, which is why all these pagan religions had all these sacrifices. 
and rituals because they were literally trying to feed the gods. The Bible's story, though, is different. First of all, God doesn't have an origin. Like we said, he's the eternal God. He's self-existent. And this is one of the things he reveals about himself when Moses asks, what is your name? Exodus chapter three, verse 14. What does God say? This is gonna be fun when we finally get to Exodus and look at this text. But God says, I am who I am. And there's a lot to that actually. But one way theologians have explained that for many years is that it means God is self-existent. He is the one who causes himself. <laughs> he is the cause. No one causes himself. There is a uniqueness about God. He's the only uncaused cause. I guess that's how you put it. And that's certainly what Exodus 3.14 is saying. I am who I am. You ask who I am? My only answer can be, I'm God. I am equals I am. That's who I am. I can only define myself by myself because I'm different. There's no one like me. I'm in a category by myself. And one of the things that makes God so different is that he doesn't need anyone else to exist. And his not needing anyone or anything is part of what makes him so unique. Listen to the way Paul puts it in Acts 17, 24 and 25. And we're just trying to get our bearings so we can understand the story of the Old, Old Testament and really understand the story of the world because the Old Testament tells the story of reality. But Acts 17, 24 and 25, Paul is looking at these idols, you know the story, and he says, you guys are, are getting this wrong. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and I don't know what stands out to you when you hear that, but one thing that stands out to me for sure is that God does not need anything, and that makes our relationship to him different. We don't bring to God anything that he's lacking. And even in the Old Testament, you see that he had to explain that repeatedly to Israel because he didn't want them to get the wrong idea about the sacrificial system. Listen, for example, to Psalm 50. Psalm 50, God says, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your, your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the field is mine. Psalm 50 verse 10. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves on the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and the, its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? And the answer is obviously no. And it's uh, really important as we approach the story that we're about to read in the Old Testament to understand that God is not just a greater version of us. That's how the, the gods of the ancient world were. They were just kind of like superhumans. And, you know, Greek myths and all of that, that's kind of what they're like. But God is not just a greater version, version of us. He uh, is in a category all by himself. He has no needs. In fact, it's almost the opposite. He, 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 he's constantly giving, and he's never coming to the end of his resources. In other words, he's not only not needing to take from us, he's constantly giving to us. And... Uh, for example, he's the source of life. Romans eleven thirty six says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Everything in the universe is absolutely dependent on God. And so that's very different than us. We are dependent, completely dependent. 
He's independent. Eliphaz says in Job 22.2, Job 22.2, can a man be profitable to God? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. And uh, Eliphaz was wrong about a lot of things, but he certainly was right there. God does not need us. And this is one of the things that made God or makes God very different than idols. And sometimes you'll find the prophets making fun of uh, people who make idols because they say, you realize that you are taking a piece of wood and using part of it to you know, cook your food and part of it to make your idol. And that idol needs you. It's <laughs> dependent on you just even to carry him around. God, on the other hand, does not need us, which is good news. Matthew Barrett puts it like this. He says, if God were not life in and of himself, then he would be weak and pathetic for he would be needy and dependent too. He would need saving just as we do. He would be a God like us, but not a God other than us. He would be a God in our world, but not a God distinct from our world. We might pray for this God, but definitely not to him. God being independent mean God, means God's free. He's completely sovereign and he's not creating and starting the story because of some lack in himself. And that's where we needed to get because there is a beginning to this created universe. But if we try to think about what it was like before that beginning, there's not a lot we can say because we don't know and it's impossible for us to picture, but we can say some things it's not. And one thing we can say that was not true, God was not lonely. Sometimes people think God created the world because he was lonely, and that's because we would be lonely if it was just us. But God is bigger than better, better than us, and we know he eternally exists in three persons. And these three persons have always enjoyed perfect delight and communion with one another. And so if we somehow traveled back in time to before there was time and there was only God, what we would see is God the Father happily loving God the Son through God the Spirit which is deep, but it's good news. Uh, one man says, if God is eternally a father, eternally loving his son, then God is eternally loving and eternally life-giving. For eternity, he has been giving out life and love. Many theologians have therefore liked to compare God to a fountain in that just as a fountain, he must pour forth, just as a fountain must pour forth water to be a fountain, so the father must pour forth life and love to be a true father. And we can take that even further. God's love is one of his glorious perfections. Those perfections deserve to be put on display. And so one reason God created the universe was to make it possible for his glory to be seen and enjoyed by others as well. You might say, God, the fountain of everything good and great overflowed into the creation of a universe and a people for himself. That's why everything exists. When we look back to the beginning, everything exists for God. So first chapter of the story, uh, creation. And one key thing, if we're gonna understand the story, is we need to know there is a beginning to the universe, but not to God. Second though, we can keep going, just to sort of highlight some things that make this story different from the very beginning than every other story out there. Second, not only uh, is there a beginning, second, God is outside of creation. It says, in the beginning, God created, which means God's not creation. He's the creator, which we already talked about. But again, there are only two kinds of things in the whole universe, created and creator. <laughs> and they are two distinct things, which would have been shocking in the ancient world. 
absolutely shocking because back in the ancient world, everything that we call, call natural, they thought of as supernatural. So they didn't see a God as being outside of creation. So if you think of a big circle, everything within, there, everything within that circle is created. Even in the ancient world mind, even God is within that circle. The gods and the cosmos and the aspects of the cosmos are entirely bound up with each other, one man writes. They do not stand outside of the cosmos. They do not create the cosmos. They're already with us on the inside of the cosmos. They come into being along with us. They're more powerful than us, but they're like us in many different ways. Their powers are limited. The cosmos is like a big circle and their gods are inside the circle with us. Absolutely every aspect of what we call the natural world was associated with some deity in the ancient Near East. It's clear though, if you look at the beginning of the biblical story, the God of the Bible is very different, right? In the beginning, God created. And it wasn't difficult for him to do it either. The ancient creation stories are really weird if you uh, get a chance to read them. So one, in, one neat thing about a lot of the Old Testament is that it's a, a polemical book. One of the things that's happening is it's a polemical book, which means it's making an argument and so obviously in Moses' day, they had creation stories. And so one of the things you find Moses doing as he tells the story of creation is making an argument against some of those creation stories. And uh, for example, one of the creation stories was uh, the Babylonian Enuma Elish. And the way they thought of creation, there was a primeval God who has more gods somehow. And from those gods comes someone named Marduk and he gets into a fight with other gods and he crushes a, the skull of a god named Tiamat. He splits her in two and he takes half of her and he makes that heavens, the heavens. And with the other half, he makes the earth and he makes humans from the blood of the other god. And we can go on, uh, they're, they're, but I'm not going to because some of them are actually more gross than that. But the biblical story begins with this uncreated God exercising complete and absolute mastery over the world. He speaks and things come into being. He, he, he doesn't just rearrange what was there. There was nothing and God created out of nothing everything. And actually that word create is only used with God. You can make stuff, but only God can create. And what did he make? Heaven and earth, everything, which is amazing. Absolutely amazing. I mean, what would I say to you? What would you say to me if I told you to build a house, but you weren't allowed to use any materials to build it? You would say I was crazy. And you know, uh, if you saw someone out there shouting, let there be a house, um, you would be like, you are crazy. But God demonstrates his absolute control over everything by simply saying, let there be light and there is light. Creating whole universes is not difficult for God because he is outside of creation. He is unique. Third, as we look at just trying to get some of the key elements for uh, understanding the rest of the Old Testament story by looking at this first chapter, this first part of it. Uh, there is a beginning, which also implies there's a middle and an end. God is outside of creation. Third, it says in the beginning, uh, God, not God's. So like I said, everyone in Moses' day was a polytheist, um, everyone. That's why actually um, the fact that Israel uh, was monotheistic is just, sh is shocking. It had to be revealed um, because everybody was polytheistic. 
They didn't actually even really think in terms of true gods or false gods. They were just gods. And uh, you just, it was, uh, somebody said it was a little bit like fantasy football. You just tried to get the best gods on your team. So if you live near a river, you definitely would want to get the river god on your team. Everybody was concerned about the sun god. But they, they just thought of gods. But the biblical story uh, begins with one God overall. In fact, if you look at Genesis 1, before the creation of man, the most words in Genesis 1 are spent on the sun and the moon because those were the most common gods in those days. But he doesn't even call them sun and moon. He just says they're lights in the sky and God put them where they were. The God of the Bible is a transcendent God. He's in a position that no one else can occupy. And as the sole creator of the universe, he's also its owner. The Bible says it like this, uh, Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So everything belongs to God. A more difficult passage for uh, some of us is Romans 9. But Romans 9 speaks of us as humans as being like clay in the potter's hands. And to someone who's arguing with God, Paul says, Romans Nine, you might want to write this verse down. He says, Romans 9, verse 21, he says, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Which is uh, intense, but if you look at the biblical story, one, there's a beginning. Two, the God who began everything stands out of sight of creation. And three, in the beginning, God, not gods. He created everything. He owns everything. And really, he's the point of everything. I think I've said this before, but in the universe, there are instruments and there are ends. So an end is a purpose. And an instrument is something you use to accomplish a purpose. Um, so like a, a letter is an end and a pencil is an instrument. But ultimately, ultimately, there's only one end and everything else is instruments. And the end is the glory of God. And everything else is an instrument that God uses for his own glory. That's, uh, that's heavy for us who want to be the end. But it is hard to understand the story we're going to read in the Old Testament if we don't recognize that. Fourth, just as we look at the beginning, uh, this God who created all things is personal. So we look at the way the story starts we try to understand some of the things that are going to be different about this story than stories that we're used to. And one of the things that we see as we look at the creation of the universe is that at the first part of the story is that God is not a force. He's thinking, he's acting, he's speaking. You can have a relationship with him. Uh, in fact, if you uh, move past the first verse uh, and you look at Genesis 1 and 2, that's a really big part of why God created everything the way he created it. And what you see besides God's ownership and God's mastery in Genesis 1 over creation is that he is an artist and he is taking everything that it says that the world was without form and void, which means that it didn't have order and it was empty. It wasn't a place that you could inhabit. And like an ar artist, he sets about giving it order and filling it as he's crafting it into exactly what he wants it to be, which is good, which is perfect, which is beautiful, which is how we would dream the world should be. 
And as we read this chapter, over and over it says, God said, and it was so, and God saw that it was good. You remember, that was day one, that was day two, that was day three, that was day four, that was day five. We see the power of God on display. He speaks, the universe obeys, and yet as we see this king work, we're seeing he's making this incredibly beautiful place. And the question we're asking is why? Uh, what is God making this beautiful world for? And we begin to get an answer to that on the sixth day. And when he talks about the creation of man in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, and these verses are, are really important for understanding what this story is about. Last week we said it's really good the Bible doesn't begin with Exodus, but it begins with Genesis. Because if the Bible began with Exodus, we would think everything's just about Israel. But we go back and we see at the beginning of Genesis, oh no, Israel actually exists for a purpose. And that the beginning we see God creating not a, a Jewish man, but creating Adam, a, a human, and creating him for a specific purpose. Then God said, uh, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over the, all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And... Uh, when God gets to the creation of man here, it's like he slows down and actually even begins talking in poetry because uh, man is to play an important role in God's universe. And what role exactly is he to play? Well, uh, we see here that he's made in God's image. And what does it mean for man to be made in God image? God's image? One thing it means is that he is to uh, rule as God's representative. So the language that Moses is using in this passage is kingly language, and we get that in the word dominion. Let man rule, God says. But that kingly language is also embedded in the idea of being made in the image of God, because what does it mean to be made in the image of God? As someone has said, image carries the idea of representation. So the word image literally means statue. And a statue represents someone. And so we were made in such a way that we represent God. And we were put on the planet to represent God. That's who we are and what we're supposed to do. It's actually the same word, image, that's used in the rest of the Old Testament for idol. When someone saw an image or an idol in the Old Testament, that idol pointed the person back to the supposed God it represented. And that's part of why we were put on the planet. We were created in God's image, designed in such a way to serve as representatives of the one true king, pointing all of nature and all of the universe back to him. And to do that, we do that specifically as we rule over this world on his behalf, like he did. I suppose originally, you remember how the earth was without form and void and God said about bringing order and making it beautiful and now God's tasked man with that responsibility, which is huge. And actually part of why your doctors and part of why your accountants and part of your, yeah, it's part of what humans were made to do. When you do those things, you're being a human, you're imaging God. 
God could have chosen to create a world and then rule over that world himself directly, but he didn't. He chose instead to rule over this world through humans. It's almost like the king placed us here as his governors. He wants to rule this planet through a chosen human representative. And that becomes even more clear in verse 28 where it says, and God blessed them, which is going to be a big word for Genesis 1 and the whole biblical story, God's desire to bless and man's sort of refusal to submit. But we look at the beginning of the story and we see God's plan was blessing, blessing, blessing. And how did God bless them? Well, two ways at the beginning of the story. Um, but the first, if we look at the verse again, and, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God's plan was to establish a home here on earth which he would rule to human rep representatives. In, in the very first part of the story, we're getting this big picture of how God originally designed the world to be. And as we look at that picture, we see God, the king, the artist. We see a good world. We see man functioning as God's representative. And you know what else we see? We see rest. God made a perfect world. God set man apart. And God declared the world very good. Genesis 1.31. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And then God rests. And I guess technically that's the beginning of chapter two. Um, but I'm not sure exactly how they could mess up the chapters at the very start like the way they did, but <laughs> they kind of did. Um, this is actually the climax of Genesis 2, 1 to 3 is actually the climax. So we sort of sometimes talk about man as the climax, but it's not quite accurate. Genesis 2, 1 to 3 is really the climax of the creation story. And there's a few things that, that make that clear. But it says in Genesis 2, 2, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them, I guess that's verse 1. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And why did God rest? Not because he was tired, um, it's more like, this word is more like God stopped and enjoyed. It's more like God relaxes. It's, it's a picture of how the world was designed to be. Pretty much from uh, that point on, every day would have been a day of rest and enjoyment. And that's really the goal of creation. Man and God in relationship, enjoying uh, this world that he made together. Someone has said, humanity's dwelling in the divine presence is the purpose of creation. And that's why there's this emphasis on the, on the Sabbath. Um, last, some, this is another quote. Last in creation, first in intention, the Sabbath is the end of, creation, of the creation of heaven and earth. And you see that in some beautiful ways. I get these from someone named Michael Morales, but he observes, the creation account begins with a seven-word sentence in, the, in Hebrew. Then the account is told in seven paragraphs. The seventh day is given a threefold emphasis. The seventh day is the only day that's not paired with another day. It's set apart from the other days by a summary statement in Genesis 2.1. The seventh day is the first day to be blessed. It's the first object to be set apart as holy to God. And so this is really huge. You look at the beginning of the story and you think about why we were created. You could say we were created to rule as God's representative but beyond that, you could also say we were created to Sabbath with God, to live with God, and to enjoy God. Um, this is uh, 
a quote from Michael Morales, but he says, the extensive description of humanity's creation on the sixth day is primarily for the sake of understanding the prospect of communion with God on the seventh, actually serving to underscore its significance. So that's the beginning of, sto of the story, uh, chapter, chapter one. And then chapter two, it's like he zooms in and we get a different angle on the creation account and we see God creating man and planting a garden and taking man and placing him in the garden, which we call the Garden of Eden. And Eden means delight, the Garden of Delight. And the Garden of Eden is kind of like the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. Um, so even if you think about the world as it originally existed, there's like the world, uh, there is Eden, and then there's a garden in Eden. So it's sort of like the tabernacle. And the Garden of Eden is like the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle where man was meeting with and enjoying God. And later on in the Bible, it's described as a mountain. In Ezekiel 28, the holy mountain of God, which is kind of neat when you think about Mount Sinai as well. But it's a very special place. It's a, a little like a temple, or you could say later temples were like Eden, a place where man could serve God the Garden of Eden, and enjoy God and enjoy the presence of God. And we see uh, in Genesis 3, it talking about God walking in the garden, which was a way of describing God being somewhere in a special way. We know God's everywhere, but he doesn't reveal himself everywhere in the same way. There are certain places where he's near to his people in a special way, which is how he was present in the Garden of Eden. And that's exciting because the Garden of Eden is a small picture of what God intended the whole world to become. It's like a, a prototype of the world planned by God, a, a blueprint. Adam and Eve were placed in the garden to extend the borders of the garden. You remember they were to multiply and fill the earth and have dominion over it until the whole world became a garden of Eden, basically. But first, it's like God puts man in the garden and he gives him a trial run to practice serving as his representative. And we see God delegates kingly responsibilities to Adam as he brings the animals to him and Adam must name them and naming something in the Old Testament was an authoritative kind of act. It's what kings did. And yet along with this responsibility, God also gave Adam a test. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. The Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And as a king, Adam was going to have to make decisions, and that's part of what would be required to bring things into submission. This is good. This is not good. This is what we should do. And God wanted Adam and Eve to trust him and submit to him and to what he said was good because God knows good. You remember the first chapter, and it was good. It was good. It was good. And so God gave them a test designed to see whether they would rule under God's authority, trusting God, obeying God, or would they try to take the authority of deciding what is good and evil for themselves? So you can almost think of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life as like the Torah, actually, uh, for Israel. They were to obey the law and allow God to define good and evil and submit to that so they could experience life. And that's part of why, you know, in the Ark of the Covenant, the law was, the law was placed like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this is the uh, first two chapters of the Bible. If we're under, wondering what the Old Testament story is about, we need to start at the beginning, creation. There is a beginning. God is outside of creation. He uh, alone is God. And he designed the world and gave man a unique purpose and the opportunity of enjoying a unique relationship with him 
But of course, that's not the way the world is right now, which is the second part of the story, the fall. Um, we get a picture of God's plan in Genesis 1 and 2, but Genesis 3 begins to explain uh, the problem, uh, which is huge. Right at the beginning, only two chapters in, man and woman rebel and essentially declare, God, we won't submit to your authority. We won't trust that you know what is good. And so instead of listening to God's counsel, they choose to go out on their own and allow an evil being we call Satan to define good and evil for them. So God told them to rule over the animals, but what does Adam allow to happen? An animal to rule over him. And you know the story. Uh, in Genesis 3, Moses says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that God had made. And so that's a snake. Um, why would Satan come in the form of an animal, like a serpent? Why not just show up as an angel of light, you know? I think it's because God's plan was to rule over the animals and the rest of the world through humans. But what does this animal do? He rejects that plan and he gives commands to man. In other words, he seeks to rule over man. So this isn't just a temptation. This is an attack on God's whole plan. And what, as God's king in the garden, what should Adam have done? He should have crushed the snake under his foot. Kings protect the kingdom. And yet he doesn't. And instead, the man and woman listen to the animal, the man himself named. And as a result, they're both cast out of God's presence and instead of experiencing God's blessing, sent into exile, you might say, where they, where they experience God's curse. And a cherubim is put at the edge of the garden to do what Adam was supposed to do to guard it. And at first, it looks like that whole kingdom plan we're seeing got turned upside down. A man was created to enjoy a perfect relationship with the world. It was good, it was good, it was good. But now the ground is cursed. We were created to rule over animals. And now um, animals have become afraid of, of man. And uh, that relationship is broken. We were created to experience a perfect relationship with one another. And yet now we're constantly at one another's throats. I mean, it doesn't take us long to even, you know, put us in a family and we can find brother murdering brother, right? And though we were created with access to the tree of life, God cut us off from that tree of life, thankfully, because uh, who would want to live in this sin-cursed world the way we are right now forever? Um, even our bodies are broken by the fall. And worst of all, we were created to have a perfect relationship with God. Now we're born sinners, all of us. And uh, instead of living with God in his presence, we're sent into exile. Adam and Eve sin, they experience God's grace and a judgment and grace and are driven eastward out of his presence. It actually, in Genesis 3, 23 and 24, it repeats it twice. God drove them out. He drove them out. And um, so you can almost picture Genesis 3 ending with Adam looking back into the Garden of Eden and, and, and wondering, how do we get back in there? And uh, that's kind of the question the whole rest of the Bible is wanting to answer, can man get back in the garden? Can man get back in the garden? And you look at the first um, 11 uh, chapters of Genesis and it doesn't look good because actually what happens is man gets further and further away from the garden. So if you think of Adam and Eve in Eden looking into the garden, Cain, the next story, there's another fall. And he, uh, Cain falls and he is judged and sent further away. 
Then uh, thousands of years go by, and um, man gets so bad that God judges the whole world. The, whole, the knowledge of Yahweh is basically lost at that point. He begins again with the best man on the planet, and uh, yet it doesn't take very long until we're in Genesis 11, and man's gone all the way from uh, Eden to Babel, to Babylon, which is kind of actually the story of Israel. They went from the promised land to Babylon at the end, and uh, sin is getting worse and worse, and man is getting further away, further and further away from God. And so we might ask uh, at the end of Genesis 11, um, can God fix this? Um, can man get back into the garden? And uh, we'll get to that uh, next time. But that is uh, the beginning of the story, the first two chapters, creation and the fall, and the big question that uh, the Bible is trying to answer. And even if you understand some of that, it's going to make the rest of the story a lot more um, interesting and important and significant. For example, the tabernacle seems kind of boring when you read the story of the tabernacle the first time. But if you think of what the tabernacle, so this is really fascinating to me. How many chapters on the creation of the whole of all the universes? There's like two chapters. How many uh, chapters on the creation of the tabernacle? Like all kinds of chapters. And it's actually uh, really interesting. It's about this same amount of times in the creation of the tabernacle or the design of the tabernacle that says, and God said, and God said. And it's got a very similar ending. So the creation of the universe and the creation of the tabernacle are really described in very similar, similar ways. And you're thinking, why would there be, I mean, I'm much more interested in creation of the universe than the creation of this little uh, tent. And yet the Bible's more interested in the creation of this little tent, in a sense, than telling you all about the creation of the universe. And the Bible's right, of course, because God wrote it. So you have to say, I wonder why that's interesting. And you go back and you understand what happened at the fall, and then you're starting to see, oh, that's what makes the tabernacle so interesting, because it's like the Garden of Eden. Again, finally, as thousands and thousands, who knows how many thousands of years, and now God sets up the Garden of Eden on the planet again. And he dresses up the high priest and he gets, he's got to be like dressed up like Adam in a sense in this beautiful, all this amazing uh, outfit, this glorious representative. And he, all of Israel sort of standing outside the garden watching this one man once a year, actually he only gets to go in once a year. He gets to go into the Garden of Eden and experience the presence, presence of God. And actually, you know, understanding the story, the creation story helps you understand why God was so serious about like the Sabbath because Israel's, why did Israel have to keep the Sabbath? Well, part of the reason was because Israel was put on the planet to say, hey, God's plan's still on. God's plan's still on. Look at us. God can get us back to the Sabbath. God can get us back to the Sabbath. That's why they, that's part of why they existed. They were a kingdom of priests representing God to the world. But the Old Testament story is long, it's complex, but if we go back and we just sort of at least begin by understanding some of these main chapters, how it flows, some of the smaller pieces, I think, are going to fall, uh, fall into place. So today we just talked about the beginning, creation, and, uh, and the fall, and next time we'll keep working our way through, through the story. And then we'll get to um, talking about some big words that will help us understand 
uh, the Old Testament story, and then we'll just do some uh, help uh, understanding how to read stories, like when you're having devotions, to get something from it, and then we'll get into the actual Pentateuch. We'll begin with the first five books of Moses. So, um, thanks, guys. I don't know if anybody has any thoughts or or questions. No Star Wars. Oh man, I'm a little worried from last week, but we'll give a shot. Mm. So you mean, what do you mean exactly? Why is it written what way? Yeah, like thousands of years and it's not really... I think it would be less that they didn't understand and more they were less interested uh, than we were, um, are in it. It's a good question. Good question to meditate on. The Bible is meditation literature. So it's, uh, as you have questions, it doesn't, you don't always get the answer right away, but it's good to just kind of, and the Bible's right. You know, it's telling the story a certain way for a reason. So when we do come across stuff that is different than how we would normally think, then that's great. It's like, okay, even as we look at the creation of the universe, we would be a lot, we would probably put a lot of different details in there <laughs> than they did. Uh, but obviously God knew what we, the way he wanted to tell the story. So it's, it's great to step back and think, oh, why? I wonder why. Even the way they wrote genealogies was a little is different. They, when they wrote a genealogy, they were diff, they were interested in different things than we are uh, when we write uh, genealogies. Um, and so they're all these genealogies in Genesis seem kind of boring to us, and they're even written different than how we would write a genealogy. But they're there to because God's interested in this and demonstrating that His promise about the seed is is continuing on. Yeah, good, Hugo. Ah, all right. Thanks, guys. Let me just close this in prayer. Father, uh, help us to be humble. You are God. We are not. And yet we can act like we're God and think like we're God, and we can get proud in, this, in, in a split second. And so even as we come to your word, keep us humble, Lord. Even as we try to study it and we try to know things and we try to... Uh, understand deep things, Lord, help us to stay humble because uh, this book will do us no good if we're proud and uh, we won't really benefit from it and we won't hear your voice and that's what we want most. So keep us humble, help us to work hard, but keep us humble and our ears open so that we might come to your word, understand it and uh, be transformed by it. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thanks, guys.